You're listening to a sermon preached at Meridian Church. For more information about Meridian Church, visit meridianchurch.com. It is our hope that this sermon is used by the Holy Spirit to minister to you the grace and peace found in Jesus Christ to the glory of God the Father. And now, here's your sermon audio. Holy Father, without your Spirit, the heralding of Christ falls flat. That which is of the flesh is flesh. And so may Christ be lifted up spiritually in the preaching of your word, put before our eyes, your spirit taking these truths to hearts so that the faith of those who are yours may either be awakened or stoked into fresh flame. May Christ be lifted up. The cross proclaimed. And then He exalted in our hearts as our ascended Lord. In His name we pray. Amen. Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus can be divided into two parts. In the first part, Jesus tells Nicodemus what must be done to him. In the second part, he, he tells Nicodemus what must be done for him. Nicodemus must be born again. Jesus must be lifted up. For man's salvation, man must be born from above, and the Son of Man must be lifted up. The Spirit must cause regeneration, and the Son must accomplish redemption. Underlying the work of the Spirit in regeneration is the accomplished work of the Son in redemption. Regeneration, being born again, regeneration is the Spirit's applying the work of redemption that the Son has accomplished. J.C. Ryle wrote, There are two things which are of absolute necessity to the salvation of every man and woman on earth. One of them is the mediatorial work of Christ for us. His atonement, satisfaction, and intercession. The other is the converting work of the Spirit in us. His guiding, renewing, and sanctifying grace. So you need both the work of Christ for your soul and the work of the Spirit in your soul. And it is the work of Christ that underlies and gives rise and empowers the work of the Spirit in us. And really these are not two separate acts that are necessary. They are part of of the singular act of God, our triune God, to save His own, considered from different perspectives. And we come into this second part of the conversation with Jesus reminding us of the first, verse 12, if I have told you. What has He told Nicodemus? He's told him of earthly things. What are these earthly things? Surprisingly, the earthly things Jesus has been speaking of concern new birth by the Spirit. It's an earthly thing because it is what God is doing on this earth to save man. So if these truths of new birth from above, the new birth by water and the Spirit, if that's an earthly thing, what are the heavenly things? And it is what Nicodemus is trying to get at, the heavenly things, whenever he asks, verse 9, how can these things be? Jesus just told them, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes, so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. He's saying, it's a mystery. And Nicodemus asks, how can these things be? It's as though Nicodemus wants to look beyond the work of God on earth 
and into the heavens behind them. He wants to rip apart the fabric of space and time and peer into the mysteries of eternity that lie behind the happenings of this work of God on earth. But Nicodemus doesn't need more information about the new birth. He needs the transformation of the new birth. And to bring that about, Jesus no longer talks about the work of the Spirit so much as He does the work of the Son. How is it that the new birth comes about? Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel For it is the power of God unto salvation. It's in the proclamation of Christ that the Spirit works and makes men new. And so, to grasp something though of of Jesus' rebuke that follows here with Nicodemus, you need to understand something of how that knowledge of the gospel, how revelation, how knowledge of the truth of who God is, is conveyed to fallen man. How do we come to know God? How is revelation given? And it happens not by man's ascent, but by God's descent. Man does not lift his ears up. God brings his lips down to convey truth as to who he is. Man does not find out. He doesn't investigate and discover all on his own mysteries and hidden truths. He can investigate. God may move him along these lines. But the reason he comes to know is because of God's work, not his own. Consider a few texts that use very similar language to verse 12. And a couple of them are from the Old Testament. So these would be texts that Nicodemus knew. If I've told you of earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? The first one comes from Proverbs. Near the close, we have the words of Agur, and they open in this way. The man declares, I am weary, O God. I am weary, O God, and worn out. Surely I am too stupid to be a man. I have not learned wisdom, nor have I knowledge of the Holy One. Who has ascended to heaven and come down? Who has gathered the wind in his fist? Who has wrapped up the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name and what is his son's name? It's a peculiar phrase there, isn't it? Surely you know. Who has ascended to heaven and come down? Yes, we see Enoch and Elijah being taken up. But they did not of their own merits and works rise up to then come back down and disclose to us what they discovered. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Second, Ponder Moses' words concerning the Sinai covenant and the law given thereby to that second generation as they're about to go into Canaan. And he tells them, this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you. Neither is it far off. It is not in heaven That you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. Deuteronomy 30, 11 through 14. God's truth of what He desires for Israel, 
is not something Israel has to rise up and grasp themselves. It's something that God came down in fire and smoke on a mountain and spoke to them so that they could hear it. It's near them. And third and finally, listen to how Paul picks up on that text in Romans 10, 5 through 9. Moses writes about the righteousness that's based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. In your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. Revelation of who God is. Is not gained because the goodness of man rises up. But because the goodness of God comes down. And so in light of that, then Jesus says, No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Remember the flow here. How can these things be? If I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you receive heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven but the Son of Man who descended from heaven. This ascent... It will be clear in just a bit is something future, but it's so certain it's spoken of as past. He who ascended. The ascent is future. The descent has already happened. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. John 1, 1, 14. How absurd is it then for this man of earth, to try to ascend to some kind of heavenly knowledge whenever the Son of Man has descended and is right there in front of him telling him of the work of God on earth by the Spirit and soon of His Son. Jesus is both rebuking Nicodemus's question and in such beauty and grace He answers it. How can these things be? So first you have this rebuke. But then with the rebuke is an answer. And it will become more plain that it's the answer in just a bit. Because just as Nicodemus must be born again, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. And to be lifted up, he has to first descend. How is it that the Son of Man, having come down, then ascends? He's going to tell Nicodemus how these things can be. And he's telling him somewhat of a heavenly thing. There's an ascent here, but it's still very earthly. How is it that the Son of Man ascends? He's lifted up. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. This is the first of three lifted up statements that we'll see in John. All three of them are in the first half of John, that section that we call the book of signs, chapters 1 through 12. And that language is absent from the second part of the book, But it gives way to Jesus referring from lifted up to more dominantly speaking again and again of his hour. And you need to see the correlation between the lifting up is the same thing as that hour that he's referring to. Here are the other two instances. John 8, 28, when you have lifted up the Son of Man. You... Lift up the Son of Man. That's a clue to what he's speaking of. 
and regards his humiliation. But then it goes on to say, then you will know that I am he. There's a perception of Jesus' glory there. That I do nothing on my own authority, but, I, but speak just as the Father taught me. John 12, 32 through 33. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Do you see something again of there's a kind of glory involved with Jesus' lifting up. A kind of exaltation and supremacy that's demonstrated. He's drawing all people to himself when he's lifted up. And yet... John adds this editorial comment. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. It's clear the lifting up involves the cross. How can these things be? Jesus is kind of telling him of a heavenly thing, but it's really something that happens on earth. The ascent of Christ to glory happens by means of the cross. The hour of His deepest humiliation is the beginning of His glorification. Just prior to that instance where Jesus said, I, when I am lifted up, will draw all men, people, to Myself. We read of Him telling the disciples in 1223, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Same hour. Same lifting up. Thereafter we read, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. Same hour. It's an hour of absolute horror and dread. And, paradoxically, glory. Jesus continues, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. Just two more examples of how Jesus speaks of this hour. John 13, 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that His hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. Having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. He knew that His hour had come, and the hour is not only the hour of His lifting up on the cross, it's the hour of His departing to His Father. John 17, 1. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. The hour has come. Glorify your Son. Jesus ascends to glory by means of His humiliation. Paul makes that plain in Philippians 2. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Philippians 2, 8-9. John Stott writes, The self-humiliation of the Son of God, which began in the incarnation, culminated in his death. Yet in that very abasement of himself, he was lifted up, not just physically raised on the cross, but spiritually exalted before the eyes of the world. Indeed, he was glorified. The cross that appears to be shame was in fact glory. Whereas in the synoptic gospels, suffering is the path to future glory, to John, it is also the arena in which the glorification actually takes place. How does Jesus ascend? By means of the cross. Being lifted up on the cross was the means by which the Son of Man who descended ascends to heaven. No cross, no crown. 
This is how Jesus ascends. But why was he lifted up? As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. This is a reference to Numbers 21. The people of Israel grumble. God sends fiery serpents to discipline them. They cry out. Moses intercedes. God instructs them to make a bronze serpent lifted up on a pole and that all who would look to the serpent, if bitten, would live. And in that way, Jesus must be lifted up so that all who would look to Him would live. So, looking and living is parallel to believing and receiving, which is harmonious and part of the same reality as being born again and seeing the kingdom of heaven. Nicodemus must be born from above. The Son of Man must be lifted up. The new birth is a result of Jesus' death and resurrection. He's answering Nicodemus' question. How can these things be? How can a man be born from above so that he sees the kingdom? The Son of Man must be lifted up that whoever believes may receive eternal life. You see, he's answering the question. By means of the Son of Man being lifted up, men can be born from above. Jesus' cross is Jacob's ladder, the means by which God and man meet in fellowship. The cross of Christ is Jacob's ladder. Jesus spanned heaven and earth by means of a ladder with only one rung. Nicodemus, you must be born from above. How can these things be? The Son of Man must be lifted up. That's the flow of the, the conversation. Sinner, the Son of Man has been lifted up. Both on the cross and from the grave. He died in the stead of sinners so that they might have the reward of His perfect obedience, eternal life. Believe in Him. Entrust yourself to Him. Trust Him. And you'll have eternal life. How can these things be? How can a man be born from above? By the cross of Christ. By the blood-bought purchase of the redemption accomplished by the Son of God, the Son of Man. The Spirit is the purchase of the redeeming Son. Why is it that the Spirit blows, making men new? Because the Son bought them by His blood. How can these things be? How can the Spirit make men new? Because Christ was lifted up. So that's how these things can be. And yet, there's another way we can ask how. We've already answered something of, of why regarding the purpose, eternal life. But let's ask why again. What's the motive? How can these things be? Why are these things? Yes, Jesus is lifted up, but why was He? What's the motive? Why would God do this? Why, why would the Son of Man be lifted up in our stead, so that we might have eternal life. What is moving God to do so? Verse 16 gives that answer. Four. Tells you why. But before we answer it, ask yourself who's telling us why. Who's speaking in verse 16? This is one of those places where I think a red letter edition of the Bible is unhelpful. 
And every red letter edition I've ever looked at, those words are in red. There's a, not a translation issue that's happening there. There is an interpretation issue happening there in making those letters red that I don't think they, they got right in this instance. John often, we will see, we've already seen, makes editorial comments, asides, explanations. I believe he's doing so here. I think this is John's explanation. I think the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus actually ended at verse 15. And John is speaking in verses 16 through 21. Let me give you three main markers that this, these are John's reflections. Number one, there's a transition at verse 16 where we're no longer looking forward to the cross. The Son of Man must be lifted up. We're looking back at the cross. For God so loved the world that He gave. Two, Jesus' preferred way, you will see it. How does He speak of Himself again and again? The Son of Man. And here... We have the last two instances we will see in John of that phrase that should be translated, I've argued. He gave, verse 16, his only begotten son, verse 18, believed in the name of, his, of the only begotten son of God. Last two times it's used in John's gospel. The other instances, you may remember, are in John 1 and 18. Other than John's prologue and 1 John 4, 9, these are the only instances of that phrase that you have only begotten Son of God. I think John is using it here. I think John is the only person who uses it in the New Testament, in the Bible, only begotten Son. Happens in the prologue, happens here, happens 1 John 4, 9. Jesus uses Son of Man. John, peculiar phrase that he uses, only begotten Son of God. Third, playing off of that, you read through verses 16 through 21, and it's really striking how much prologue is there. Remember John's prologue runs from 1.1 through 1.18, that very distinct portion of John. So here would be an exercise to see this, this afternoon. Read the prologue a couple times through. Read verses 16 through 21 a few times through. Repeat that, and you'll start to see only begotten, descent, ascent, darkness, light, not comprehending, but for those who do, eternal life. You start to see all kinds of connections. Here's what I think John has done. He means for you to carry that prologue with you throughout the remainder of this book. If you remember, we set that up. He's laid out enough in his gospel already at this point. Enough has unfolded for you to get what he laid down in that prologue that he wants to remind you of it one more time so that you don't forget it as you go through the remainder of this book. I think that's what he's up to. So with that, why did the Word, who was God and who was with God, Become flesh. Why did the Son of Man descend? Why did light come into darkness? Not only all of that, why did He do so to be lifted up on a cross? Why? The answer is love. For God so, so loved that He gave his only begotten Son. This giving includes not only the descending, it includes the lifting up. God so loved that He gave. Has anything more precious ever been given? And has anything more precious ever been given to something so horrendous? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Octavius Winslow answered our question of why this way. Who delivered up Jesus to die? Not Judas for money. Not Pilate for fear. 
not the Jews for envy, but the Father for love. How can these things be? One answer is because the Son of Man was lifted up. One answer is to look at the Son. The other answer is to look at the Father who gave. Why did He give? For love. That the Son would come down from the heights of glory is astonishing enough, but that He would do so to be lifted up on a cross... What love is this? That's what John is after here. For God so, that's the key word. That little word, so, is the key word to verse 16. That's what John is wanting to convey to you, is the magnitude of that so. The depth of the Father's love. And you begin to grasp something of it when you look at the sphere of the Father's love. He so loved the world. Now here I am, a Reformed Baptist, An avowed Calvinist, what do I do with John 3.16? And the answer is really simple. I believe it. And I preach it. And I glory in it. For God so loved the world. And I do all that without the least trouble of mind or heart. I don't find John 3.16 the least bit challenging to the dozens of texts that I take to teach a definite atonement. Not in the least. I do find making, making John 3.16 to teach a general atonement problematic not only For those dozens of texts that I believe preach a definite atonement, I find them to be problematic in explaining John 3.16 and its context itself. Consider this. Steve Lawson has enumerated ten ways that the word world is used throughout the New Testament. Cosmos. Ten ways it's used. I won't go through all ten, just consider one instance that I think shows there are different connotations from what one would normally think of. John 12, 19. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. When they said that, did they mean every single individual without exception? The American Indian has gone after him. Now, you don't have to agree with all ten of Lawson's uses that he enumerates. I don't know about that one. That one seems right. This one not. That one good. You don't have to agree with all ten. You have to see, just by that one verse, that the word world has different connotations that have to be determined by the context. What's the sense right here? I agree with Warfield, Jobiki, D.A. Carson, who all say something like this. The idea is not that the world is so big that it takes a great deal of love to embrace it all, but that the world is so bad it takes a great kind of love to love it at all. The focus of 316 is not the scope of the Father's love. It's the depth of the Father's love. That's the point for God so loved. What did He love? The world. Spurgeon picks up on this. What was there in the world that God should love it? There was nothing lovable in it. No fragrant flower grew in that arid desert. Enmity to him, hatred to his truth, disregard of his law, rebellion against his commandments. Those were the briars that covered the wasteland. But no desirable thing blossomed there. God loved this sphere of fallen humanity so much that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him 
would have eternal life. You see, it's speaking to the magnitude of the Father's love for the sphere of fallen humanity. That'll become plain more so in just a bit, I hope. God loved the sphere of fallen humanity such that He gave His only begotten Son. Has there ever been more of a disparity between the gift given and those to whom it was given than this? One worthy of all glory, the other worthy of all hell. And the degree of the Father's love seen in what He gave His Son, where that gift was, was given the world and the reason why it was given, whoever would believe in Him should not perish but have eternal life. This is love to make the oceans look like a puddle. This is love to make the sun look like a match. This is love to make the cosmos look like a child's terrarium using there's no scale to measure this so for God so loved there's no scale to measure it using megatons to measure that so is as sensical as using grams to measure Jupiter using Light years to measure the vastness of this love is as sensical as using millimeters to measure the distance to the nearest sun. Using cubic miles to measure the volume of this love is as sensical as using teaspoons to measure the contents of the ocean. This so is infinite. It cannot be measured. This so is as high as heaven, as low as sin, and as broad as eternal life. For God so loved. And to make this explanation and the purpose of the Father's giving clear, we're told again, for God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. The purpose of this giving, the purpose of this sending, the purpose of the descending, the purpose of the lifting up, is not to condemn, but to save the world. And with that, you learn something of the connotation of the word world now, that's just glorious. God sent His Son... To save the world. There is a universalism taught here. God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved. In the end, there will be a mass of fallen humanity forever in an eternal hell with no escape. It's no purgatory. There's no graduation. It's forever. And there will be a mass of new humanity in an eternal kingdom. And whenever you look at that new humanity in the kingdom, no one will say God failed in what He aimed to do in sending His Son to save the world. Jesus was sent to save the world and He will save just exactly that. They will look at that new kingdom and they will say He saved the world. Jesus said He accomplished what His Father sent Him to do. And you're told here that the Father sent Him to save the world. The sphere of fallen humanity is redeemed by the Son. Further highlighting 
this truth, we're told that the Son was not sent into the world to condemn the world. We're told that whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So Jesus' purpose to come and save sinners lets you know they're already condemned. That's why He's saving them. Jesus doesn't come into a good world. He doesn't come into a neutral world. The light comes into darkness. Still, John's reasoning can confuse. Those who do not believe are condemned already because they have not believed. So Jesus comes, this world is already under condemnation, but then you're told that they're condemned already because they've not believed. Here's what I think John is saying. That their unbelief leaves them in their already state of condemnation. The reason they're not saved is not because they're condemned and God just leaves it at that. God sent a Savior to save this sphere of fallen humanity that whoever would believe in Him should be saved. And the reason they're lost now, they're already condemned and they refuse to believe in the one in whom their salvation. I think that's the idea. I think that's backed up by verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides, remains on him. And this sets you up for John's concluding editorial comment as regarding judgment. Jesus didn't come into this world for condemnation, But because of His coming, the grounds of this world's condemnation are main, plain, and evident, heightened, made plain, clear. Verse 19, this is the judgment, the light has come into the world and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. The darkness of man is illuminated by the coming of the light. God provided a Savior for the world, and this world has rejected Him. The sphere of fallen humanity, its judgment is this. They love darkness rather than the light, and what makes that plain and manifest is when the light came, they crucified Him. They love darkness rather than the light. Why? Because their deeds are evil. Why is it that their deeds being evil makes them love the darkness and hate the light? Because the darkness conceals their evil. The light exposes it. It makes it plain. Everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. Already condemned, they add this to their final condemnation. And so this is why Jesus can say, For judgment I came into this world. John 9, 32, 39, excuse me. For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. The purpose of the Father's sending was to save. The world's already condemned. But yet Jesus' coming makes obvious, apparent, manifest, exponentially so, makes it clear and plain, those who see and those who don't. Distinguishes them, exposes the darkness of the darkness, and makes their ultimate judgment plain. John doesn't wish to leave us with that, though. Sets up a final contrast, coming back to the light. Verse 21, Whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So what about those who do come to the light? There are those who don't come to the light and those who do. And the contrast is between those who don't come, their works are evil, and those who do come, do what is true. Now that starts to make you squirm a bit. I hope it does. Wait a second, they distinguish themselves by what they do? Works of evil, doing what is true. But read on. 
They come to the light, those who do what is true, so that something might be manifest. So that something might be clear. Whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen. So that they come to the light so that something isn't missed. What is it? That his works have been carried out in God. Sit easy. His works have been carried out in God. What does that mean? It means that the wind blows where it wishes. And you hear its sound. But you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Verse 8. It means truly, truly, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Verse 3. It means truly, truly, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Verse 5. It means that which is born of flesh is flesh and that which is born of Spirit is Spirit. Verse 6. It means that to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Chapter 1, 12 through 13. They were born of God. And when they come, it is plain that that coming is a work that's been carried out in God. For man's salvation... Man needs both the work of Christ for him and the work of the Spirit in him. The Spirit must renew. You must be born again. Oh, hear this. Every man. That means woman, child. If your species is man. Every man must be born again. You must be born again. Spirit must renew. And for the Spirit to renew, the Son of Man must be lifted up. The Son of Man was lifted up. The Spirit is causing men to be born from above. And behind both the sending of the Spirit Son to accomplish redemption and the sending of the Spirit to apply redemption behind both is the love of the Father who gave. Because He gave His Son, He sends His Spirit to make new those who the Son purchased to Him. Listen to how Paul spoke of these things in Titus 3, 4-7. through When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior, and it will be plain, that's a reference to the Father. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of Of the Holy Spirit. Whom he poured out on us richly. Through Jesus Christ our Savior. God poured out the Spirit. Through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that being justified by his grace. We might become heirs. According to the hope of eternal life. Sinner, don't marvel at the how of the new birth. Do you want to be born again? Is there a longing in you right now? And you're thinking something like, oh, that the Spirit would blow and make me new. Look to Christ lifted up. Are you longing, oh, that I could know this kind of love? Oh, that He would blow because I hate the darkness that I've loved. 
and I want to love this darkness that I've hated. If there's something stirring in you right now that's along those lines, the Spirit is blowing. Look. Look to Christ. Lift it up. Look, believe, and trust. Throw yourself at His feet. And life eternal will be yours. You have this promise. God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever would believe in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. If you long for the Spirit's blowing, look to the evidence of the Father's loving in the Son's being lifted up. Let's pray. Holy Father, may your spirit blow now. May those who have hated the light love the light. May those who have not believed, remaining under your condemnation now, believe, be counted righteous. And may every one of your children here, may our faith be strengthened. May our hearts be freshly melted that we have been so loved. May our faith be strengthened as we look to Christ lifted up. And may our humility be deepened as we know It's all because of your spirit blowing and causing the new birth. We've been born of God. You've worked in us. To the praise and glory of that name that you've exalted above all names. And in that name we ask this. In the name of Jesus, amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon audio from Meridian Church. Please feel free to share this resource with others. We only ask that you do not alter the content in any way. Again, you can find more resources at meridianchurch.com.